Well, if that time has not already been rich enough, um, I don't know what else. Uh, that we've been reminded this morning that God is good and that we are never left alone. Um, and if you take nothing else from this morning, if you hear nothing that I'm about to speak about, uh, that should suffice to get you through this week, that God is good and that come hell or high water, whether you're in fire or in flood, that you are never alone. That is the promise of the scriptures that have carried God's people for millennia. And it's not about to stop with us, that God is good and he is with us always. That ought to encourage you this morning, it has me. In an interview, someone once asked the scouting founder, Robert Baden-Powell, what the scout motto meant. Do you know that was the scout motto? I didn't know that until this week. They asked, they asked what does it mean? And he replied, well, it means to be prepared. Inquisitively, the interviewer asked the inevitable follow-up question. Prepared for what? Why for any old thing, he replied. In his book on scouting, Baden-Powell wrote that to be prepared means that you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. And this series that we are embarking on over the next six weeks is called Be Prepared, and it is about readiness. Not only does this have inflections and nuances of our vision for the year, come what may, I will run, but this season of Lent, the lead up to Easter, is one of preparation, of readiness, of mind, of body and spirit. It's like when any party or celebration or milestone event is approaching, we take the time to consider perhaps what we'll wear. Maybe we'll go to the shops to buy a, a new outfit. Perhaps um, the anticipation and excitement of a, a wedding that you're going to look at all of the places you could stay and all of the other things you could see as you make potentially a weekend of it. If you're going out uh, to dinner, maybe you're one of those people like me that loves to look at the menu online before you get there, just so you've already got a bit of an idea of what's coming. There's the expectancy and the anticipation such that we look to Easter with. Lent, if you will, is a wedding of the appetite, uh, a time of internal consideration paired with outward action that embodies the gospel story itself. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be preparing ourselves to relish in the fullness of the feast, which is Easter, at which time we will gorge ourselves at the celebration of resurrection, and we will sing like people saved, because that's who we are, people of resurrection, saved from death into life. I'm going to pray as we get to the word this morning. Father, I thank you so much that you are inviting us to be prepared, to ready our minds and our bodies and our spirits to receive, Father, from you what you have for us in this season. Father, I pray as we look with incredible anticipation and hope toward the future, the future, Father, where your kingdom is coming and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, and Father, we eagerly anticipate the fullness of new creation as it comes. 
Father, in the meantime, in the now but not yet of your kingdom, that we see it, feel it, experience it, and can be part of it right here, right now. Father, I pray that our hearts would be transformed more into the likeness of your son, Jesus, that we may be about your work and your will in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2012, a man from Japan named Yuzu Noda was traveling in Australia with two of his buddies. On their bucket list of destinations was North Stradbroke Island, uh, just off the coast of Brisbane. It's famous for its beaches and its lakes, um, incredible surfing, four-wheel driving, um, just its natural beauty enough is, uh, is reason enough that this was on their bucket list. Now, granted that driving in a foreign country is fraught at the best of times, however, Yuzu and his buddies, I'm sure, weren't expecting it to be as difficult as it was about to become for them. It's not like Yuzu was being irresponsible or careless. Yuzu wasn't being neglectful. He wasn't willfully breaking the law. In fact, in all innocence, Yuzu was just following the GPS unit in the dodgy little Kia Rio that he'd hired from the airport. Having said that, I haven't been to North Stradbroke Island, but by virtue of its very name, I can make the assumption that it's not connected to the mainland, North Stradbroke Island. As it turns out, my assumption, tested against fact, is correct. There is a ferry that leaves from a township called Cleveland, and you can put your car on the ferry, and that is how you get across to North Stradbroke Island. But Yuzu on that faithful day, like many of us do, was absently mindedly listening to the faceless lady who has that clear yet insistent voice on the GPS. She's actually got a name. Did you know this? Her name is Karen John Jacobson. She's otherwise known as GPS Karen. <laughs> she's an Australian lady living in New York, and she is the voice in the GPS. And she was giving him directions, as she does. And as he drove closer to the coast, the tar road began to give way to gravel, and then the gravel began to give way to sand. At this point, perhaps you'd think that Yuzu, seeing nothing but 15 kilometres of water between the bonnet of his Kia Rio and North Stradbroke Island, would have opted to pull up, to reassess the situation, and to ask GPS Karen a couple of questions. However, he did not. Yuzu ploughed on through the sand, which then gave way to the low-tide mudflats of Moreton Bay. All the while, Karen didn't say stop, turn around, chuck a Yui, you've gone too far. Yuzu pressed on, and with wheels spinning, mud flicking up onto his windows, their progress came to a sticky halt. And Yuzu and his buddies were well and truly stuck. And to add insult to injury, Moreton Bay is tidal, and they were there at low tide, and sure as the sun rises, the tide came in, and in a matter of hours, their car was surrounded and had become an island all of itself. A news article from the Redland City Bulletin on the 15th of March 2012 was entitled, How Not to Get to Stratty. 
and this is the image that went with it. <laughs> Gooses. <laughs> and where's the next one? It's even better. Just for the juxtaposition, that's the ferry they, sh they should have been on that ferry with that car. However, <laughs> oh dear. Sometimes life can play out just like this situation did for Yuzu. We can be cruising along, knowing where we want to go or where we want to be, following what we feel is the right way, taking cues from the voices around us, which seem to be the wisest ones at the time. Sometimes we have familiar knowledge of the terrain. At other times, it can feel like we're traveling through life in an entirely foreign country. And like Yuzu, we can end up stuck. We can wind up debilitated by the circumstances around us. That even at times are through no fault of our own, except for maybe a lack of awareness or wisdom. You know, it's no small thing for the soul to feel stuck. It's no small thing for the soul to feel lost or to feel consumed by a rising tide of hopelessness as they start to surround us. You know, as I look at the world right now, no less at times within myself, it's hard not to be impacted by the brokenness and the lostness and the hopelessness that we see and that we feel and that we experience. It feels like to me that the world is stuck, having followed a story, a narrative that has led it off the course toward beauty and led it to a muddy bog. As a nation, we've been through drought and then bushfires and then a global pandemic, now floods, and watching the horrors of war unfolding in Europe the threat of global unrest, the likes which haven't been seen since the last world war. Now, the events of the last few years and the toll that they have had upon each one of us and our families and our church cannot be understated nor underestimated. Which for me, being the ultra positive, she'll be right kind of guy, is pretty difficult, I must confess. And I don't want to drive this point too hard, nor for the focus this morning to remain on the weightiness of the world that seems so stuck in the mud and how that impacts us. But it is vital for us to truly come to terms with the grace of God and the hope of new life offered to us in Christ to recognize that things are out of whack, both in our world and in our own hearts. And this is what Lent is. It's a time of inner reflection, an acceptance of grace, recognising that we cannot get out of this mess on our own, but only by the grace of God that leads us to an outward action and response. This season is about coming to terms with the brokenness of our world and within us, not to wallow in it, but to become renewed agents of hope 
who will carry forward the mandate to see the world transformed by the power of Jesus and his gospel. Now, I began searching scripture this week in hope to find how people of faith uh, throughout our Christian history dealt with difficulty and how they dealt with disappointment, how they dealt with personal pain, how they dealt uh, with lament over sin and pressure in hard times. How did people of great faith navigate confusion and attacks from the enemy? threats to personal and even national security, what do we see in Scripture? And I found Moses in, in Exodus 24. And Moses following God's call to go up Mount Sinai where he would um, be given the Ten Commandments. And Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Sinai meeting with God. And he came back down from the mountain. And as Moses came down after such arduous wrestling with the Lord, no doubt also beauty and wonder and awe in that moment, or long moment, 40 days and 40 nights, coming down with the stone tablets to see the, the people of Israel had made for themselves idols, even an enormous golden calf, which they began worshipping because they thought he wasn't coming back down the hill. I mean, can you, can you imagine the disappointment that Moses would have felt as he walked down the mountain to see his nation worshipping another god. So Moses had to go back up the hill for another 40 days and another 40 nights while God renewed the covenant with his people. And then David, great example in 2 Samuel 12, you can read the story, but in short... Now, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, the girl next door, he learned that she was pregnant. David had her husband executed so that he could take her to be his wife. At some point, point after the baby was born, Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin and David confessed and he repented. Even though David repented before God, there were still consequences for his actions. The prophet David told him that the child would die. And after the prophet left, the young boy became very ill. After seven days, David's son died. I mean, I, I, I cannot begin to imagine the tragedy and the grief and the loss of losing a child. But here is, here is David in the middle of one of the most horrific and horrid circumstances. I mean, could, I'm just trying to put myself in that situation. The blame that David would have been putting on himself and the shamefulness that he would have felt. Potentially, has he lost his son because of his actions? He would have felt so lost and so broken. And there's Elijah. Elijah had just whooped the pants off the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and a wicked queen Jezebel was pretty ticked off, and he wanted him dead. In 1 Kings 19, we read that Elijah fled and was afraid. He was discouraged, and he wanted to die. I mean, there's dark night of the soul that Elijah must have endured as he hid for fear of his life, in fact, to the point where he no longer wanted to live. 
Ezra, in Ezra 10, it records how heartbroken Ezra was when he wept over the sin of the Jewish people. While they were in exile in Babylon, they carried on an absolute treat. And as they came back to Jerusalem, Ezra saw what had happened in their nation and he wept and he cried and he cried out to God for the sin of the people. Esther, Esther's another example. In Esther 4, a guy named Haman, and he had it in for a Jewish man named Mordecai, so much so that Haman wanted to exterminate the Jews everywhere from India all the way through to Ethiopia. Mordecai's cousin was a lady named Esther, who was also the queen. She was a Jew, but Haman did not know this. Mordecai asked his cousin Esther to petition the king to save the Jewish people. And in that day, approaching the king was a no-no without invitation. The consequences, execution. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself also there in Esther's shoes, at risk of her own life. She is to go before the king to plead for the Jewish people at great risk to herself. I mean, how does someone possibly make decisions under the weight of such circumstances? How does wisdom prevail? in moments of tragedy and despair? How does the heart not falter under the heat and pressure of moments like these? And we fast forward to the New Testament and we see Jesus himself at the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus had his authority called into question. Jesus had his calling pulled into question. He had his power questioned by the enemy. Jesus was there 40 days and 40 nights. I can only imagine again that there were moments, dark nights of the soul, of desperation and despair as Jesus wrestled himself with what was going on. I can imagine he was lonely at times, he was afflicted at times, moments wanting to give up, take his bat and ball and go home. And perhaps some of these stories ring true for you. Maybe there is a moment that you can empathise with of loneliness or despair or heartache or desperation. In their own way, all of these stories are of disappointment and personal pain and loss and grief and fear and pressure and confusion and threat to life. Though each so different, there is one thing they all have in common, particularly how they responded in the midst. They fasted. Moses fasted food for 40 days and 40 nights the first time. He came back down. And he was so torn apart by what he saw and he went back up onto the mountain and again he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. When David got the message that his son was ill on day one, he fasted for seven days, believing that God might just, by his graciousness, heal him. Elijah, while he was in the desert running from Queen Jezebel, he was fed by an angel And that food carried him on for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat as he fled and as he hid. Esther, before she went before the king, 
knowing full well that this could cost her her life. She called the entire nation to fast and to pray. Jesus, in his 40 nights and 40 days in the desert, he fasted. And fasting, as we look at it in Scripture, has been a way that God's people have reoriented their hearts and their minds in face of disappointment, in face of personal pain, in lament over sin, of pressure, in hard times, in confusion, while under attack from the enemy, and even in threats to personal and national security, there has been a reorientation of heart through the act of fasting. And I'm going to teach a little bit about fasting this morning, as it is a, um, a historical tradition that is um, taken up as part of Lent. And it is a tool that we have at our disposal. It is a grace that God gives us to be able to reorient our hearts in hard times. And I am of the belief that we need this right now. That we need a reorientation of our hearts, of our wills, of our emotions toward what God is doing in the world and not what the world is saying we ought to be. There's an interesting story in Mark 2 that seems to confuse the place of fasting in the Christian life. Some people came to Jesus with a question. Why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As if to say, what kind of wedding would that be? That just doesn't make sense. You know, I am here, the bridegroom is here. Um, why, why are we fasting, guys? I'm, I'm, I'm here. But then he says, uh, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come, however, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. See, in Jesus' day, the great fast that the Jews regularly kept were linked in Jewish tradition to the times of desolation that occurred among their people, particularly the destruction of the temple in 584-ish BC. It was about the destruction of the temple and other similar disasters that the Jewish people would fast in memory of. Hence why John's disciples and the Pharisees fasted. As part of the Jewish community, this is what they did to commemorate their history. Yet Jesus seems to be doing something new in this moment. I mean, was this the moment that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 8.19, where Zechariah prophesied that fasts would give way to feasts? He says, thus says the Lord, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Was this now the time for fasting to be done away with and for joyful feasts to be the reality? But here we are in Mark 2 with Jesus confusing the whole situation in saying that the children of the bridegroom can't fast while the bridegroom is there with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom is no longer with them and they will fast. Well, what do we do with this? On one hand, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, observing fast that connected to major events in their nation's history, then we have Jesus saying, fasting, yeah, nah, 
<laughs> I'm here, guys. Let's party. But don't get too comfortable because there's a time coming where I will be going again and will be back to fasting. And what can we make of this? N.T. Wright says of this, that it appears that Jesus is saying, I am doing something now that will put all of your commemorations of the temple into the shade. And yes, there will be a very strange moment when I am taken away. But in principle, we are launching out on a new day which is not looking back to past disasters, but looking onward to the new kingdom which God is inaugurating. This rite suggests turns the fasting thing around and looks very, very different. So it's important to understand that fasting was never done as a ritual to twist God's arm. As though we're saying, God, look at what I'm doing for you. Now answer my prayers. God, look at how I'm suffering going out going without pizza and all my favorite foods. Lord, bless me. Give me all of the desires of my heart, the boats and the Ferrari and all of the bits and pieces. Theologues much smarter than I, the likes of Tim Mackey and Scott McKnight, even N.T. Wright, suggests somewhat controversially, but I tend to agree, that the idea of a breakthrough fast actually has no biblical underpinnings. Fasting is not about getting God to do what we want him to do. Yes, there have been times, and there still should, where the church come together and decide to take our faith and situation really, really seriously and get serious about prayer and come together and to fast and to pray and to seek God for his will to unfold in greater measure. Fasting, like any of the historical Christian practices that we are looking at over the next six weeks, is not a transactional activity. It is not about doing this so God will do that. That is not the point of fasting. That if I do this, God, you do that. God, we, are not in the, we are not in the business of a transactional relationship with God. It's not about bargaining or brokering a deal with God. It's not that if I fast this or give that, then God, you do this or do that. The new day that Wright suggests we're launching out on, I believe, is one that is marked by transformation of the heart and not a transaction of behaviour. That is the new day. Wright poses the question, isn't it a bit odd as we get into the stride of Lenten disciplines to talk about Jesus and his disciples refusing to fast? Not a bit of it, he says. It's because of that new creation launched once, once and for all with Jesus himself that we need to take time and make the effort to bring our lives into line with this new reality. We do not fast because we commemorate some great national disaster. We fast because... As those already caught up in Jesus' kingdom project, in God's new world, we need to be sure that we are saying a firm goodbye to everything within us that clings to the old. Fasting is an activity of taking off that which is of the old creation and putting on everything that is of the new. This is the invitation before us into a transformational experience of fasting that puts away the old self 
and allows the new to come in. Fasting is no longer a ritual or a commemoration or a tip of the hat to the past. Fasting, also like giving of our money in church, like worshipping together as a family, like confessing our sin to God, like taking communion, like even coming to church on a Sunday, is to celebrate and to celebrate is an invitation into the inner transformative work of the Holy Spirit that reorients us toward God and his activity in our lives and the world around us. So we can apply the exact same theory and teaching to everything that we do as a faith community. That when you give, it is not a transaction. Uh, I'll give this so the church gives me this. I'll give this much or I won't give this much because the preaching was either good or bad that week or they didn't play my favourite songs that week. You know, our giving is not a transactional thing that we do. Our worship is not a transactional activity. Our being together in church is not a transaction. Our coming together to fellowship over meals and coffee are not transactional with one another, but these are all activities of transformation that God is inviting you and I into that our hearts would be renewed to become the new creations that Jesus went to the cross for. Matthew 6.16 says Jesus, sorry, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, just after teaching on prayer, he moves on to fasting. And he says, when you fast, profound, not, not if you fast, when you fast. There is an assumption that the people who follow the way, who are Jesus' people, will fast. It is part and parcel of the Christian experience, when you fast. And I encourage you to go and read that passage of Scripture on your own this week. Matthew 6, 16 to about 20-ish. Only four or five verses about what fasting looks like. As I sat in prayer this week about teaching on this topic of fasting, I was asking God to give me a way of describing fasting that not only made sense to me, but also makes sense, hopefully, to you. And he gave me four images, uh, perhaps even parables, and I'm going to close uh, with this in a few moments. He said to me, fasting is like when the worship leader says, just the voices. If I could transport you back to our um, Christmas every year and we sing the song I can't even remember it now and, yes and there's the moment where whoever's leading just has all right, just, with the, just the voices moment and there's the fall on your knees and hear the angels sing, is that the words? and if you've been here in that moment and Andrew Hewitt is on stage singing, there is an incredible moment of clarity when all of the other noise falls away and there is a sharp discernment that we can hear in just the voices. That is what fasting is like. Fasting is a way in which we can let all of the noise of life fall away and hear just the voice. I believe there's clarity for you in fasting, if you are feeling like there is a situation that you are facing now where it seems really unclear and the answers aren't there, I believe that if, 
you come to God in this transformational act of fasting, there will be renewed clarity for you. It will be just a voices kind of experience. The second was this, that fasting is like driving a car through a tunnel and the radio goes fuzzing, fuzzy, then it comes clear again. I must, I must confess I listen to AM talkback radio. Judge me all you like. I try, I try and get a balanced view, the ABC and 2GB at the same time. The far left, the far right, try and find in the middle there somewhere. It's a mess. Anyway, uh, you drive through the tunnel listening to AM and all of a sudden or under a car park, you know what happens, right? It just goes and you can't hear anything anymore. But then when you, you come out the other side of the tunnel, there is a renewed connection. And perhaps you're feeling disconnected from... God may be disconnected from, uh, from whatever may be your faith experience right now. You know, I believe in the transformational act of fasting, of going without food for a period of time, um, a meal, two meals a, a day, two days. There's no rules. It's not like the Bible says you have to do it this many days. But positioning ourselves to rely on the sustaining power of God in our lives by going without food. I believe that there will be a new connection with God for you. That if it feels like the radio has just kind of gone, and you can't hear, and you can't sense, and you're unsure, new connection. There's clarity, and there is connection. The third was this. Fasting is like being on a plane when it ascends beyond the clouds. You know the sun has still been shining every day for the last couple of weeks? Above all of these storms? You know, I believe in the transformational act of fasting. It's like when we get on a plane and it's raining on the ground. And we take off 1,000 feet, 2,000, 5,000, 8,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and just we pop out above the fluffiness of the clouds and all of a sudden it is a bright sunny day up there. Now the word God said to me this week around this was perspective. that as we fast, as we engage in the transformational act of fasting, that when it feels like we are being inundated by the storm of life, that when we fast and we come into God's presence in such a way that we don't see the storm anymore, in fact, we rise above it in his presence to see the sun. The S-U-N and the S-O-N, sun. And the fourth was this, that fasting is like a well-curated shopping list. <laughs> the most important things make the cut. And this was about priority. And I believe in the transformational act of coming into the Lord's presence through fasting. There will be a reprioritization, a reordering of your heart, a reordering of my heart. I believe this is the power that God is inviting us into, that he would bring for us through fasting renewed clarity, fresh connection, renewed perspective, and a reordered heart through our priorities. So fasting is not to be feared. I'll invite Bretto to come back up. Fasting is not to be feared. Fasting enables us to lean into the sustaining presence of God, to hear his voice with renewed clarity, to be drawn closer to him in every way, to have our vision reoriented, to see the kingdom with kingdom eyes and not worldly eyes and to reorder our hearts to prioritise what's most important to him. This Lent season, the Spirit is inviting you closer. And can I encourage you to step toward him?
and see what he wants to say and do over the coming weeks. You know, I believe that we are in a season of reorientation, as I said, where the GPS Karen voices that can so easily lead us off track are silenced, where the external noise of busyness and fear and comparison and compromise is hushed under the voice of Holy Spirit as we give him the permission to lead and guide us to where he wants to take us. No doubt, God, like all of the Cleveland locals, got a giggle out of Yuzu driving his Kia Rio into the mud. Some days we aren't going to get it right, and that is okay. Yet I believe in the new day that doesn't look back to the past, but looks forward to the new thing that looks like the kingdom coming. And so on a matter of practicality, I invite you to give fasting a go. In the same way, I want to encourage you to consider your giving. I want you to consider our regularity of worshipping together as a family. I want you to consider how you're diving into praying for the brokenness of our world. I want to invite you into practically supporting people in our community who are suffering and going through hard times or in times of need at this time of year. These are not transactional activities in which we try and impress God or to get his attention. These are ways that we live into the transformed life, ways that embody the new way of being human, ways that we forget what lays behind and we press on to the things that lay ahead. These are ways of declaring the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it, ways that throw off the old creation and the old self and take up the new creation version of ourselves. Only through the one Jesus who died for us and rose again. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that in this work of reorientation of our hearts in this season, that you would be so near to us. Father, I pray that if we feel like Yuzu stuck in the mud, that you by your grace would reach down and retrieve us. That you would do an incredible work of transformation, Lord Jesus. Father, that we would recognise our lostness and our brokenness and our sinfulness and that of our world, but we would not be consumed by it, but we would be people of hope who look forward with eager expectation always, each and every day, to the work of new creation that is perpetually happening among us because of the resurrection. And Father, I pray that we would be people who live the resurrection story each day and each week, that as we see things in our lives be put to death, buried, that again they would rise and become fruitful again for your name and your kingdom. Amen.